So this week I came across an article that was listing the top destinations, tourist destinations per country. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna mention a country and I want you guys to guess out loud what you think the top uh, tourist destination of that country is. Now top as in like most visits, not necessarily like the highest rated on TripAdvisor or whatever, but the top, the, the most visits per country. We'll start here in Ireland. Uh, what do you think is the top tourist attraction? All right, so a lot of different answers. According to the Google, it is the Cliffs of Moher. And so every single article I read talks about the cliffs being the number one tourist attraction. All right, here's another one. India. Taj Mahal, Taj Mahal. excellent. France. Yes. The Eiffel Tower. Good. England. Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, well done, guys. New Zealand. The Shire. The Shire, all right. Yeah. It's actually Hobbiton. So there you go. So all of you Lord of the Ring nerds in the room, uh, you can book right now. If you book quickly, you can book a two-night stay at Hobbiton where part of, of the Lord of the Rings movie were filmed for 1,500 euro for two nights. So feel free. Like if you want to, I don't know if you'll be able to afford to get there, but you can at least book the place to stay. All right. What about Italy? I thought it was the Colosseum. It's actually not the Colosseum. It is the leading tower of Pisa. Now, between the two of them, the Colosseum is better, in my opinion. But, you know, that, this is what the, what the research says. Final one, America. The White House, good guess. It is Disney World. Disney World is the number one tourist attraction in America. All right, so, and we could go on and on some of these. Like, the Netherlands, the number one tourist attraction is Anne Frank's house. Like, never would have guessed that. Uh, but, like, so, anyway, visiting. Right? As we open up our text today, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is the must-see attraction. Like Jesus is this moment where everybody wants to be, everybody wants to spend their time around Jesus. At this moment in Jesus's life, he is at the height of his popularity. He is at the height of his ministry prowess. Like people just want to surround themselves with Jesus. When Jesus is in the area, you've got to buy a ticket, right? You've got to go and visit Jesus. You've got to go see him. If you're in Jesus's hometown, you've got to go make your way to see Jesus. If Jesus comes to you, to your area, you've got to visit him. And this is what we see playing out in our text this morning. People are surrounding themselves. Jesus is in town and people, Jesus draws this huge crowd. So what I want us to do is we're going to walk through the four characters that we see play out in the scriptures together. As we walk through this story, we're going to play out, we're going to walk through the four characters that we see. And this week I was reading an article about the most lovable characters. And what this, what this, some research, what you had to do is people would have to go on this website and they had to vote and they had to rank 2,000 characters from most lovable to most punchable. I don't know who has time to do this, but it, like 40,000 people did this. So apparently if we can rate 2,000 characters, we can read our Bibles, right? We got time for that. Um, but so they, they rate these characters and some of the top most lovable characters on the top of the list was, was Bumblebee from Transformers, Alfred from The Dark Knight Rises, Hagrid from Harry Potter, two that I could totally agree with was uh, Troy Barnes from Community, and Terry Jeffers from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. These were the people in the most lovable category, the most people that people just loved these characters. If there was ever a group of people, a lovable characters, we could see in our text today. 
Man, it's got to be the crowds. Like, let's look at them. Let's look at their story play out. In Mark 8, verses 1 and 2, we were introduced to them. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here for three days, and they have had nothing to eat. And I love this. Like, these characters, these people, this crowd, they surround themselves around Jesus. Mark says there's 4,000 of them. They get around Jesus, and they are just, they are just there. And I don't know if you caught this as Johanna was reading for us. Mark makes no reference to teaching. Now, let's assume, like, we can assume that Jesus was doing some teaching with these people, but, like, we don't know. All we know is they want to be in the presence of Jesus. All we know is they are so in love with Jesus, they want to be here with him so much that they are willing to even run out of food. So it wasn't their intention to be with Jesus this long. If so, they would have planned, they would have brought some more food. But as they were in Jesus' presence, they just couldn't leave. Is that the way you feel about Jesus? Is that the way you feel about being in his presence? Do you sit there and just like, I just can't leave. I'm willing to forsake how hungry I am because I just love being in the presence of Jesus. This is where, the, this is where these people are. They're just spending time with Jesus and they just want to be with him. They want to be around him. And Jesus, in verse 3, makes this really seemingly unimportant statement. He says, some of them have come a long distance. And as we read that, perhaps we think geographically, long distance. It's partly true. But actually what we find with this phrase is this is consistent with the New Testament writers about referring to the Gentiles. So when Jesus, this makes sense, right? Jesus is in, in Gentile territory, and these people have been a long ways away. It's the Gentiles, this group of people who are surrounding themselves with Jesus. If you think about Acts 2.38, Peter preaches this powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, and people are cut to the heart. They want to know, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then Acts 2.39 says, this gift is for you for your children, for your children's children, and all those who are still a long distance, a long ways away. It's a reference to the Gentiles. Paul, in his letters, writes this phrase, those who are a long ways away. It's a reference to the Gentiles. And so, two chapters earlier, when Jesus feeds 5,000, it's the Jews. Now, 4,000, it's the Gentiles that are surrounding themselves with Jesus. They have come all around him. And so, they're with Jesus they're loving being in his presence, no intentions of leaving, but they run out of food and, and Jesus acts on their behalf. Verses eight and nine, here's what we find. It says, they ate as much as they wanted. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. What I want us to notice is at the start of verse eight, this moment, this moment he says this, they ate What? What's it say? As much as they wanted. They ate as much as they wanted. They didn't just eat a little bit. They didn't just eat part of it. No, they ate as much as they wanted. That Greek word for wanted is, is deeply satisfied. This is what Jesus is offering the people. This is what Jesus gives them. It's this idea of contentedness, being completely satisfied with what you have eaten. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience like I have. But here's the reality. There is a difference between being full and being satisfied. You guys know the difference. Like we can go to Supermax together and we can get full. Are we going to leave there oh, completely satisfied? 
Probably not. Like if we go to McDonald's, we could get full eventually, but are we gonna be, are we gonna be satisfied? However, if I go eat at Nakshi, I'm not just gonna leave Nakshi full, that's a given. I'm gonna leave there, I'm gonna leave there satisfied. Or if I go to Papa Rich in the city or some of my other favorite restaurants, I'm not just gonna leave full, we're gonna leave satisfied. And there's a difference, right? And this is what Jesus is doing for the people. They're not just leaving full. It's this idea of satisfaction, this idea of being completely filled. And here's the reality is when we have Jesus, we have contentedness, fullness, and enough. We live in a world that says, you just need more. We live in the most uncontented world in our time. We just need more of this, more of this to be content. And Jesus is saying, hey, what I offer you is true contentedness. We live in a world that is just on empty. We just, we need a little bit more of this, a little more time, a little more money, a little more experience, a little more of this. And we just, we just need more. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm enough. I am enough in me and only in me can you find true contentedness. Only in me can you find fullness. Only in me can you truly find enough. And so we read through the account of Jesus now. So Jesus, the crowd surrounds Jesus. And, and what we're going to find in verses 3, let's read the rest of this. Verse, back in verse 2 through verse 9 again. Let's read the encounter with Jesus. Jesus again, he says, I feel sorry for these people. For they have been with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them? Out here in the wilderness, Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told them to sit down, told all the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and thanked God for them. And broke them into pieces. Then he gave it to the disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. And as we just read, they ate as much as they wanted. And Jesus set them home as they have eaten. I want us to notice the first thing that is said about Jesus in this text. It says, I feel sorry for these people. Get that. I feel sorry for these people. Now, if we were going to look at, at Mark 6 to see the, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says this again, I feel sorry. It's that, that Hebrew or that Greek word for compassionate, splachnong, fun word to say, right? But like, it's this movement like deep in our gut, right? This deepness that moves us to action. This is what Jesus feels for these people. And in Mark 6, he feels sorry for the people because they are like sheep without a shepherd, and so Jesus feels sorry and he feeds them. He takes care of them. This time, Jesus feels deeply sorry for the people. He is moved in his gut. He hurts for these people. Why? Because they've what? Look at the end of verse two. What's caused Jesus to feel sorry for these people? They have nothing left to eat. Catch that. Jesus feels sorry for these people because they have nothing left to eat. It's not demon possession that causes Jesus to feel sorry for these people. It's not the people that are, that are lame or deaf or mute that Jesus feels sorry, that makes people feel, Jesus feel sorry for them. It's not that there's this child that's laying on their deathbed that makes Jesus feel sorry. It's food. The people are hungry. 
And Jesus feels sorry about that. Jesus, it hurts him. Jesus is sorry for that. And I think this is just this beautiful compassion that we see about Jesus, that it shines all the more brightly in light of these simple, little, trivial parts of our lives. These things that maybe seem don't really matter. These are the things that Jesus cares about. Jesus cares about the fact that they're hungry. And can we just pause for just a second and realize that Jesus feels bad for them? He feels sorry for them, even though he knows that he can feed them. You guys get that? Jesus feels sorry for these people, and he knows he can take care of it. But it still doesn't stop him from feeling sorry for the people. Because that's Jesus, right? Jesus isn't unconcerned or unbothered by your pain and your suffering and your difficulty. Jesus still feels sorry. He still hurts. It hurts him. And maybe it's a huge thing. Maybe it's a small thing. But the reality is, if it matters to you, it matters to God. And he is not sitting there rolling his eyes when you come to him in your difficulty and your pain. No, these people are hungry and Jesus feels sorry for them. And the same thing is true of us. Like God cares. Jesus deeply cares about us so much. He's not unbothered. He's not unmoved by the pain and the suffering that we walk through. He cares. Remember the Lord's Prayer we just prayed? Give us today our daily bread. Jesus cares about the things that we need. He cares about us deeply. And as we read through this story, Mark is connecting this story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 to two other stories that we see in the Old Testament. The first comes from Exodus chapter 16. Can you guys think of a story where there's a wilderness and bread being provided for the people? Yeah, it's, the, it's manna, right? So Exodus 16 is this moment where the people of Israel, they exit Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and they're like, this is great. We don't have any food. Actually, they don't, they're not like this is great as all. They complain like almost immediately, but they're complaining. They're hungry. And God, is, God provides manna from the sky. God provides for his people. And so Mark is connecting this story back to that story. And what is he telling us here? Like, what is it for us? Like, what is he communicating One, God has always provided for his people. But what I think is important for us this morning is that we are not forgotten in the wilderness. You may be in a dry season of your life. God has not forgotten you. You may be in a really tough, difficult place in your life, but God has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you in the wilderness. He is not, he is not uninterested in your pain and your suffering. He remembers, he knows, he feels sorry He sees you. The heart of the feeding of the 4,000 is the compassion of our our Father. The love that Jesus has for each one of us. We are not forgotten. We may be in a difficult place, but he has not forgotten you. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. In Mark chapter 4, so Jesus mentions this to the disciples, and they answer this. They say, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them? I think this is one of the points that Jesus is trying to get to his disciples. And so they, they're like, okay, how are we supposed to have enough food to feed these people? How can we find enough food to feed these people? I think the real important thing for them to realize is they can't. But Jesus can. They can't by themselves. They can't under their own power. They can't walk to the, through the wilderness and find enough food to feed these people. But Jesus can. Maybe today, 
That's the reminder that you need. It's that Jesus can. Maybe you've done everything you can to restore your marriage. You've done all the right things, and it just doesn't seem to be working. But guess what? Jesus can restore them. Maybe you've been on your knees begging and praying for that prodigal son or daughter who have walked away from the faith, and you're just begging, and you've tried everything you can for them to be rescued. Guess what? Jesus can rescue them. Maybe your heart is just dead, and your heart needs revival. Jesus can do that. He can renew your hopes and your dreams and your plans and these passions in your life. Maybe you've tried it all. You've done all the meetings. You've done all the steps. You have accountability. You've done all these things, and you can't seem to remove that addiction from your life. Jesus can. Maybe there's a friendship and some some family relationships that have really been fractured, and they've been broken, and you don't know if they can be fixed again. Guess what? Jesus can reconcile those things. Maybe you've done all you could to reach that neighbor that you love so deeply. You've done everything you can to reach them with the gospel, but here's the reality. Jesus, Jesus can. And that's a reminder for these, for us and for the disciples. Yeah, sure, maybe you can't, but Jesus can. And so the, the disciples, they make this response like, what are we supposed to do? How can we feed these people? How can we find enough food for them? It's not like Jesus has just done this two chapters ago. I mean, clearly, like, but they're just in this moment like, how? How can we do this? And what we're going to see as we walk through the next three chapters of Mark's gospel is the theme of the next three chapters, verses 8 through 10, is the disciples, they don't get it. Usually categorized by Peter, Peter speaks for the disciples, but for the most part, as we walk through there, they don't have a clue what's going on. They don't have a clue. They have failed to grasp the divine lordship of Jesus. I mean, let's give the disciples a little bit of credit. They do at least say we have seven seven loaves of bread. So let's give them a little credit. So maybe even as we walk through this story, the biggest problem with the disciples isn't necessarily this response. The biggest problem with the disciples, I think, comes in verses 14 through 16. Let's read the the big problem here. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Really? They are so worried about bread that they have literally missed what Jesus has just told them. So they're, for, they're upset, they're aggravated. Oh, we only have one loaf of bread. And then they start fighting amongst one another. Jesus says, hey, watch out. Beware about the the." The yeast, beware of the leaven of, of, the gen, of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then they're like, oh yeah, once again, we only have one loaf of bread. And then I just picture them being like, Peter, this is all your fault. If you'd have brought bread, we wouldn't be in this situation. And Peter's like, no, check the calendar. This is Andrew's week to bring bread, not mine. This isn't my fault. And Andrew's like looking at his watch. Oh no, it's 12.01. It just switched to Philip's week. It's not my week. It's not my problem anymore. And here they are just arguing about everything that's going on. And Jesus is sending them. He's warning them, watch out. And all they are is worried about who brought bread or who didn't bring bread. I mean, let's just do the, the simple math. If Jesus can feed 4,000 with seven loaves of bread, pretty sure he can cover 13 people with one loaf of bread. But anyway, they're, they're just they're so concerned that they miss the entirety of what Jesus is trying to say to them. You guys ever had one of those moments, though, where you were so concerned about something else that you just missed it? 
that you missed the conversation, that you missed something that was actually being said. Maybe you've already drawn some conclusions in your mind that you didn't even hear what other people had to say. Back when Tiffany and I were, were dating, like she, she started university two years before I did. And as she was getting ready to go into university, we had some, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, some loving people come alongside us and say, hey, your, your relationship's probably not going to last. Just be aware when you, she goes to college, everything's going to change and it's going to be difficult. You're probably going to break up and it's not going to last. Enjoy it now, but just be ready. I don't know who says that anyway, but you know, people, people wanted, to, wanted to warn us about this. And a few months, or a few, or I think it's just even a few weeks into Tiffany being in university, we have the phone call. And she calls me and she starts talking to me and is like, hey, like, I'm in college now. Oh, yeah, I know. And it was like, and she just starts laying out some of these things like, hey, I'm, I'm playing volleyball, so that takes up a lot of time. I'm meeting a lot of new people and I've got a lot of these new experiences going on in my life. And she, being the planner that she is, someone who cared about our relationship plan, she's like, here's some steps that we need to take in order to make sure that our relationship can continue to thrive, to make sure our relationship can continue to grow. She finishes laying all those things out, and I'm just like, well, I guess we're going to break up now. And she, she didn't look at me. We're on the phone, and she's like, what? Do you want to break up? And I was like, no, that's, that's what you're saying. And she literally says to me, were you even listening to anything I just said? No, because I had this preconceived idea from all these crazy people who told me we were going to break up as soon as we had this conversation. It's like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing now. And I missed everything that was being said that was actually really positive. And I wonder if we've ever done that with Jesus. Like we just have all these ideas, these thoughts about him or, or these uh, untrue beliefs of what we say that aren't verified in scripture. And then when Jesus speaks, we're like, well, I, this is what I know to be true and I'm not even gonna put it against what the scripture says and, and we miss it. That's what the disciples are doing. They're so worried about bread that they, that they miss out. It's the fun fact they talk about in, in the passage that there were large baskets that were left over. That idea of large baskets, it's the same word that is used of, of the, the paralyzed man that the four friends carry to Jesus, the, the basket, the mat that he's in. So we're talking a huge, huge basket here. And Jesus can have that much left over, but we're worried about not only having one piece of bread. The problem is the disciples are, worth, are, are not only guilty, not only in danger of missing the point of Jesus' teaching, they're in danger of missing the truth about Jesus altogether. They're so worried about eating that they're about to miss a much bigger thing. The point that Jesus is making here, the point wasn't simply that Jesus could supply bread, but that he is the bread. This is the point that Jesus is getting to. He wants them to understand, like, there's more to me than just somebody who can supply bread. I am the bread. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that there's so much more to him than just being the bread multiplier. There's so much more to Jesus than just being an exorcist. There's so much more to Jesus than just being someone who can heal. There's so much more to Jesus than just being someone who can walk on water. There's so much more to him than these things that they've seen him do. He is king. He is Lord. He is the way to life. He is the Messiah. And they're so worried about bread that they're, they're going to miss it. They're going to miss the truth about Jesus because they're worried about having one loaf of bread in the boat. And Jesus asked them some questions to help them get their eyes back on what truly matters and what's really important. 
verses 17 through 21. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or even understand yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets were leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. And all these questions that Jesus is asking are really bookend by the statement in verse 17, this question in verse 17 and in verse 21, don't you understand yet? Survey says, no, they, they don't. They don't understand. This week I was, I was reading an article entitled 13 Alarming Signs That Your Partner Doesn't Understand You Even If They Love You. And here's some of the alarming signs is they are always questioning you. They buy you gifts that you hate. You don't, they don't get your jokes. Last two that is really important for our conversation. They don't listen to you. They miss the point when you talk to them. Like that's a disciples, right? They don't listen. They have missed the point when Jesus is talking to them. And Jesus is very concerned about this. He is very worried about this because they are, they are missing the point. And what Jesus is doing, he's firing a warning shot to these people. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, you are on the precipice. You are on the edge of falling into something very, very diff- troublesome. You are on the edge of becoming the Pharisees. You are on the edge of becoming what you have never wanted to be. Jesus says, are your hearts too hard? to take it in. I mean, just think about this. The disciples have spent, other than like the 40 days that Jesus is in the wilderness, but like the disciples have spent all of this time with Jesus and day in and out, walking with Jesus, doing with Jesus, learning to be an apprentice of Jesus. And yet they miss it. Like in their hearts are still becoming hardened. Their, their hearts are, are not soft to the ways of, ways of Jesus. And what we find in scripture is that we can't, our hearts can't be hardened like unintentionally. And this is why Jesus is firing a warning shot. He's like, you're in danger of becoming just like the Pharisees. You're in danger of becoming just like them. You know some things. You're here, but you're missing it. I think the same thing can be true of us. It can be a warning for us. We can show up to church on the weekends. We can be here every single week and our hearts are not soft to the realities about Jesus and we are not willing to allow him to change us. This is the shot that Jesus is warning them as well. And it's very interesting in that in verses 19 and 20, Jesus doesn't ask them how many people they fed. He doesn't ask them how much like, bread they used to feed these people. No, he asked them of the, about the leftovers. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that is, but the, we, if you want to know some of the speculation, we can talk about that later. But here's the point. They get the answer correct. And maybe that's part of the problem. They know all the right answers. They know the right things, but yet their hearts are not soft for the things of God. And so just a question for us today. Do you know Jesus? Or do you just know about Jesus? Like, are you, are you pretty familiar with the things that Jesus did? Like, you can quote some of the passages. You can talk some of the teachings that Jesus has. Or... Do you truly know him? 
Do you spend time in his presence? Do you long to be in the presence of the Father? Do you long to be in Jesus' presence like these cr the crowds do? People who want to be in the presence of Jesus, where are you at? Do you just know things about him or do you truly know him? And Jesus asked some really pointed and chilling questions. In verse 18, he says, You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? And I think it's a warning for each and every one of us to not become like that. Not to become so accustomed to hearing the good news of the gospel or to hearing what Jesus has done or what he's calling us to that we don't even listen anymore. That our eyes are just kind of closed to seeing the things that God is doing because, you know, we've been in this for a while and we're getting a little jaded, a little hard-hearted. And, and what, I don't know. But it's this warning for us, like, don't let this be the case. Don't have ears and not be able to hear. Don't have eyes and an unwillingness and an inability to see. We need to have a soft heart. We need to be people who are constantly and continually spending time in the presence of Jesus, whether that's in, in prayer or in silence and solitude, in, in the word, in time together with one another. We need to be spending time in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus asked this other question in verse 18. He says, don't you remember anything at all? It's pretty pointed uh, indictment of the, of the disciples. Don't you remember anything at all? We are literally two boat rides away from me just feeding the 4,000, and now you're sitting here worried about one loaf of bread. Don't you remember anything at all? It's really easy to pick on the disciples here, right? I mean, I've never forgotten anything that God has done for me. It's never happened in my life. Maybe in your life, sarcasm, if you're missing that. Like, we're all guilty of that, aren't we? Anyone ever kind of forgotten some of the amazing things that God has done? And then you start worrying and you start questioning whether you can trust him. Anybody ever done that? I know I have. This is what the disciples are doing. They've completely forgotten. If you, uh, just a couple of, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago now, we are in the process of moving our house around to like move the girls into a different room. And as we were doing that, I was moving a, a dresser that we just use for storage. And in that dresser, I found like in the top drawer, I found one of our prayer journals. And this is one of the things we used to write down some prayers that we were praying through and, and journal it and write it down. And I just opened up this prayer journal and I was reading it. It's from almost eight years ago. It's when my nephew Liam was born. So when my nephew Liam was born, they found out that something wasn't quite right in his heart. Come to find out that he had a heart valve that wasn't like connected and things were not going well for him. So at five days old, Liam went in for open heart surgery. And they actually had to like, because he was so small, they had to like literally take the heart out of his chest to repair it, put it back in him. And I just remember during this time of just so much prayer, weeping, God, please take care of my nephew. Please be with my brother Matthew and my sister-in-law, Rebecca. And there was a real possibility that this was not going to go well. And I just remember begging God and praying to him about these things. And then when we were back in America on uh, last month, I went to a baseball game and got to watch my nephew, Liam, who's almost eight now, playing baseball, running around. And when I see him, at, we were at the beach, and he takes his shirt off, and I see the scar on his chest. And I'm like, I was reminded that Jesus answered this prayer, and God answered this prayer, even that I forgot that I prayed. I forgot. It's been years ago, and I forgot. Because you know what? We are a forgetful people. And if there was ever a command that we need, it is to remember. Remember. 
Because we forget. This is a theme throughout Scripture. It's to remember. Remember what God has done. Don't you dare forget what he has done for us. Don't you dare forget what he has done in the lives of the people around you. Remember. And I don't know how you need to remember. I don't know some ways that you need to do it, but I want to encourage you, beg you, plead with you to find some ways to do it. Maybe it is a prayer journal that you can just write down some things each day that you're praying about. And as you look through that journal, maybe you can see, hey, God has answered this prayer. This is the way God has been working in my life. Maybe it's a note on your phone. It's just jotting down a few things that, that you remember to be true about Jesus. Maybe it's every night at dinner, getting together with your family and saying, hey, where did you see God today? What are some things that God is doing in your life? For us, every single morning, we start our day with our God time. And before we read our, our scriptures together, we always go through this list of, hey, what are you thankful for? And Ava and Emma immediately are always like mommy and daddy. And I was like, yes, I know they're incredible. But other than them, like, other than us, what are you thankful for? Because we want to start having this mindset of we're seeing the things that God is doing, seeing the way that he is working, seeing some of these things that we could be thankful for because we as a people, we need to remember. The disciples are guilty of this. They've, they've forgotten. And they've chose to forget. And so we need to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember the commands that God has for us. Remember the calls that God has for every single one of our lives. And so as we walk through, at the beginning, we talked about the most lovable characters in this survey. And so the most punchable characters in this survey, here are some of the, the most punchable. Dolores Umbridge from Harry Potter. Absolutely. Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Prince Humperdinck from Princess Bride, <laughs> Cornelius Snow from The Hunger Games, and my personal favorite, Sid Phillips from Toy Story. I mean, who blows up a toy anyway, right? Most punchable characters. But if there was ever someone in this story that we just wanted to punch, in a godly way, right? In a, in a, in a spiritual way, sure. It's got to be the Pharisees. Like, just look at the story that plays out here. And I think it's important, though, before we read this text, for us to realize when we read about the Pharisees, often in the gospel, it is meant to be an indication. They are a picture of the unrepented hearts. They are the people who have chosen to, to not repent. They're the people who have chosen not to accept the authority of Jesus. And so maybe as we read through the story, like, we want to look at ourselves like, oh, yes, I'm the, I'm the crowds, right? Or, or, okay, sometimes I can be the disciples, but like, I think sometimes we can be the Pharisees as well, where we fail to repent, we fail to accept the authority of Jesus. Let's read this, verses 13 through, or 11 through 13. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed over to the other side of the lake. So these people, they want to test Jesus. That's actually the exact same word that is used in Mark chapter 1 about what, the, what Satan does to Jesus. In the wilderness, this is who the Pharisees have become. They're playing the role of this story. They're playing the role of Satan. And never in a million years would they say this is who they wanted to become. But here they are. 
The same thing is true for us. If we reject Jesus long enough, we are not going to get better and better. We are going to get worse and worse, and we become like we never thought we would be. And so they are testing Jesus. Not only do they test Jesus, but they demand a sign. And now this word is not the same word that Mark uses to describe like a miracle. Now this is like a, a catastrophic, a huge sign, something that would be absolutely certain to prove the divine power of God. This is not your everyday, run-of-the-mill, regular miracle, as if there is such a thing. But this is, what we're talking about is like, picture Elijah. Or like, yeah, Elijah. When the fire from heaven comes down and consumes the altar. Or think of Moses when he splits the Red Sea. This is what they're asking for. They're asking for this huge, incredible sign. But just think about it. The last seven chapters of Mark, like I think Jesus has done enough to prove his authority. I think Jesus has done enough to show that he is God. I mean, just look at this. Like Jesus has cast out countless demons. Jesus has fed, quick math, 9,000 people plus women and children. Jesus has healed people. Jesus has cast out a demon from long distance. Like Jesus has calmed a storm. He has walked on water. Like Jesus has felt when a woman touched him and his power left him. Like Jesus has done a lot. And so really, here's the issue. The issue isn't whether Jesus has proved his authority, but whether we have accepted his authority. It's the issue with the Pharisees. It's not whether Jesus has approved his authority. Jesus has done that. They've just failed to accept it. I mean, in fact, in Mark chapter 3, they acknowledge that Jesus can cast out demons. They just say that the, that the devil let him do it. They've seen what Jesus has done. They just fail to, they fail to acknowledge it. And in the gospel, what, gospel is what we find is those who ask and those who seek a, a sign or a miracle have already refused the evidence that has been given to them. So what about you? What's it going to take for you to accept the authority of Jesus? What is it going to take before you finally say, okay, I will trust you with my life. I will live with you as Lord of my life. What is it going to take for you to accept the authority of Jesus? Are you just saying, okay, God, you've got to do X, Y, and Z for me. Once you do that, then we'll, we'll talk about your authority. Or is the fact that he died for your sin, that he rose from the dead on his own. Talk about power. Talk about authority. Rising yourself from the dead. Defeating sin and death and evil once and for all. Like, what more do we want? What more can Jesus do to prove his authority? So it's up to us. We're going to be like the, the Pharisees and be like, oh, Jesus, show us something else. Show us another sign. Show us your authority. Or are we going to, are we going to accept it? Are we going to accept his authority and get in his presence and just be with him? and believe him, and trust him. And so I said, Mark is connecting the story back to two stories in the, in the, New, or the Old Testament. First is the, the manna from the wilderness. The next is, is from, the, from Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah 25, it gives this, this future prophecy about the future messianic banquet, where people are going to come together, and they're going to come, and they're going to they're gonna eat and they're going to worship, and they're going to celebrate. And so as we read Isaiah 29, verses 6 through 9, as you listen to this, it's going to sound really similar to some of the language that we get in the book of 
Revelation. When Isaiah is looking forward to this day, John in the book of Revelation is looking in on this day. Listen to what what we write here. Isaiah says this. He says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's army will spread a wonderful feast for all the people in the world. It will be a delicious banquet with with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In this day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trust. Let us rejoice in the salvation that he brings. Here's what I believe to be true with everything in me. If Jesus is with us, we have all that we will ever need. If we have Jesus, we have all that we will ever need. It is my prayer that you're going to accept his authority. It's my prayer that you're going to say, okay, Jesus, you can be my Lord. You can be my King. I'm going to follow you every step of the way. I'm going to let you soften my heart. Please open my eyes so I can see. Open my ears so I can hear. My prayer is that every single one of us will say, verse 9, this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is our God in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice at the salvation that He brings. The way that we're saved. It's by trusting in the Father. And we rejoice in his salvation that he brings. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the way that you have rescued us. God, we sing in light of your salvation and what you've done. Lord, we look forward to the day when there is this great banquet from people all over the world, from every tongue, tribe, and nation who come together and to worship you, to celebrate what you have done. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have rescued us, that you have saved us. And Lord, I pray, God, if there are some areas of our lives that we refuse to to give you authority, if there are some areas of our lives that we refuse to allow you to be the boss, the Lord of our lives, Lord, I pray today we surrender that to you. We allow you to be our king. We allow you to be our Lord. God, help us not to just cling so tightly to to our own desires, but to live for what you want from us. God, help us to live every day with ears that are open to hear, hearts that that are open, eyes that are open to see. Lord, help us to surrender our lives to you and to your authority. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he's done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.